The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello, he's been described as the last person to have read everything. He co-authored the lyrical ballads, which changed poetry in English, and he generously helped his friend William Wordsworth ascend to his loftiest heights, even as he himself fought desperately against the personal demons that were dragging him down. He wrote some masterpieces of poetry and criticism. He gave us the words psychosomatic and selfless. He may have coined the word bisexual, and in a fit of lovesickness, he once signed up for a stint in the Royal Dragoons under the false name Cumberbatch. He wrote about depression and, depressingly, had one of his greatest moments of inspiration thwarted by the notorious person from Porlock. He gave us the ancient mariner and the albatross and Xanadu with its stately pleasure dome and the concept suspension of disbelief. His name was Samuel Taylor Coleridge, and we'll discuss his life in, around, and through poetry and criticism today on the History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Welcome to the podcast. We are on our own dizzying ascent, descent, I don't know, straight to who knows where. Once we were headed straight to Cheesecake was my toddler son's announcement of where he was going as soon as he got his nap out of the way. And now he's all grown up and we're no longer headed straight to Cheesecake. We're headed somewhere strange and unusual, but at least we're enjoying the ride. Our focus today is Samuel Taylor Coleridge, and we'll start with his father, who was a vicar in Devon, England, in a town called Ottery St. Mary. Reverend John Coleridge, known as an intelligent and decent man, was also the headmaster of a grammar school called the King's School, and he had a slew of children, three by his first wife and then ten more with his second wife, Anne Bowden. Our man today, Samuel Taylor, was the thirteenth of these children, and he was born in 1772. One might think, with all those older brothers and sisters, he'd have been somewhat wild and aggressive and excellent at sports. I know a kid who had 11 older brothers, and he was, pound for pound, the greatest football player who has ever lived. He was just very small, but he was intensely aggressive and had such great balance, probably from getting knocked around by brothers of various sizes all his life. And he also had tremendous fury for the exact same reason. But this was not Coleridge. Coleridge says he, quote, took no pleasure in boyish sports, end quote. One of his early childhood endeavors was to swim the river in his clothes, which has come down to us as, quote, causing him serious discomfort, end quote. Yes, one would think. Instead, he read like crazy, and by six years old, he was reading Robinson Crusoe and other thick books. And he had an active imagination, and reading itself became almost like a part of the high drama in which he lived. Listen to this quote. I found the Arabian Nights entertainments, one tale of which, the tale of a man who was compelled to seek for a pure virgin, made so deep an impression on me. I had read it in the evening while my mother was mending stockings, that I was haunted by specters whenever I was in the dark, and I distinctly remember the anxious and fearful eagerness with which I used to watch the window in which the books lay, and whenever the sun lay upon them, I would seize it, carry it by the wall, and bask and read. End quote. See a book by the window, seize it, and bask and read. That is such a good description of what it's like to feel the adventure of reading, the thrill of it, when one is young, and dragons and such are strange and scary. Even taking a voyage to the desert or the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City can be wild when your readerly imagination is active enough. Coleridge's father died when Coleridge was eight, and he was then sent off to school where he met Charles Lamb a schoolmate with whom he would become lifelong friends, two fellow poets and literary aficionados 
from a young age and then into their adulthood. And Coleridge gave us this amazing account of a teacher he had while at school. Quote, I enjoyed the inestimable advantage of a very sensible, though at the same time a very severe master. At the same time that we were studying the Greek tragic poets, he made us read Shakespeare and Milton as lessons, and they were the lessons, too, which required most time and trouble to bring up so as to escape his censure. I learned from him that poetry, even that of the loftiest and seemingly that of the wildest odes, had a logic of its own as severe as that of science and more difficult because more subtle, more complex, and dependent on more, and more fugitive causes. In our own English compositions, at least for the last three years of our school education, he showed no mercy to phrase, metaphor, or image, unsupported by a sound sense, or where the same sense might have been conveyed with equal force and dignity in plainer words. In fancy, I can almost hear him now exclaiming, Harp? Harp? Liar? Pen and ink, boy, you mean. Muse, boy, muse? Your nurse's daughter, you mean. Pyrian spring? Oh, aye, the cloister pump, I suppose. Be this as it may, there was one custom of our masters which I cannot pass over in silence, because I think it worthy of imitation. He would often permit our theme exercises to accumulate, till each lad had four or five to be looked over. Then, placing the whole number abreast on his desk, he would ask the writer why this or that sentence might not have found as appropriate place under this or that other thesis. And if no satisfying answer could be returned, and two faults of the same kind were found in one exercise, the irrevocable verdict followed. The exercise was torn up, and another on the same subject to be produced, in addition to the tasks of the day. End quote. What a master! What an exercise! And I see this when I read essays by young people. There is a lot of filler, and there are sentences that that sound grandiose and and are maybe well put together, but aren't to the point. General cliches, throat clearing, a sentence that could belong in one essay just as well as in another. I like this master, although he sounds a little, uh, maybe a little bit forbearing. Okay, back to Coleridge. Coleridge was lonely at school, but he maintained his passion for reading. And now that I think about that sentence, I might have replaced the word but with the word so. He was lonely at school, so he maintained his passion for reading. It was loneliness, surely, that drove the reading as much as the other way around. From his days at school, he went to Cambridge for a few years, where he impressed all of his friends. Here's a friend describing what it was like to go to Coleridge's rooms at night. Quote, when Aeschylus and Plato and Thucydides were pushed aside with a pile of lexicons and the like to discuss the pamphlets of the day, ever and anon, a pamphlet issued from the pen of Burke. There was no need of having the book before us. Coleridge had read it in the morning, and in the evening he would repeat whole pages verbatim. End quote. Coleridge was also known for his poetic gifts. He won a gold medal for an ode that expressed his abhorrence for the slave trade. These were his years at Cambridge were the years 1791 to 1794. Coleridge is just a few years away from revolutionizing poetry with Wordsworth, whom he hasn't yet met. But we can see his intellectual and political and social views and his poetic interests are already fairly mature. Remember that master, who he appreciated, who was getting him to speak in plain language. Remember that. That'll come up later. And we see this anti-slavery manuscript that he won the prize for, which he wrote by hand in Greek, is considered a national treasure. When it was bought recently for something like 20,000 pounds, it was barred from leaving the country. Translated, the poem reads like this, On the wretched lot of the slaves in the isles of western India, 
in the highest assembly, July 3rd, 1792. O death, leaving the gates of darkness, come hastening to a race yoked to misery. Thou wilt not be received with tearings of cheeks or with lamentation, but on the contrary, with circles beating out the dance and with the joy of songs. Thou art fearful indeed, but still thou dwellest with liberty, hateful tyrant. In a striking passage, it says, O you who revel in the evils of slavery, O you who feed on the persecutions of the wretched, wanton children of excess, snatching your brother's blood, does not an inescapable eye behold? Does not nemesis brandish fire-breathing requital? Do you hear or do you not hear? Let's put some dates on the table here. The French Revolution began, of course, in 1789 when Coleridge was 16. From 1791 to 1794, when he wrote this poem, this anti-slavery poem, he was at college. Thomas Paine's Rights of Man was published in 1791 and 1792, right in this time period. William Godwin's Political Justice followed right after 1793. These were both both Paine and Godwin were writing humanistic, anti-slavery, milestone pamphlets, and Coleridge himself lectured against the slave trade in a fiery speech in 1795. William Wilberforce presented a set of abolitionist proposals in Parliament in 1789. This was debated in one form or another for the next 18 years. Finally, slavery was abolished in the UK in 1807 except that it wasn't quite. The slave trade was abolished, but slavery itself was not. That took another 26 years, and it was kind of a big deal. Bigger than we might think today when the UK is sort of on the edge of Europe and and not huge. This was the day of the British Empire. So banning or abolishing the slavery or the slave trade had worldwide immediate consequences. Anyway, I say all this to put into context Coleridge's long history of attitudes towards slavery, which were not always consistent. He was a passionate abolitionist in his youth, and then pragmatism set in, and finally he seems to have adopted some pro-slavery positions in the sense of believing in educating slaves or that slaves might be better off under the protection of the Brits, learning European culture and the arts of manufacture and so on. Coleridge and Wordsworth had a falling out, due in part to Wordsworth's increasingly conservative politics. Coleridge didn't go as far as Wordsworth did, but he too had a kind of turning away from some of his youthful passions. But we're still in those heady days of college. In December of 1793, while still at a student of Cambridge, at, uh, at Cambridge, Coleridge was jilted by his lover, yet another British woman named Mary Evans. This one, not the eventual George Eliot, but someone who captured his heart anyway. I loved her for five years, he said, almost to madness. She was the eldest sister of one of his schoolmates, and he met her in 1788 when he was in his teens. He didn't tell her he loved her, alas, and when he saw her leaving a church, he turned sick and all but fainted away. He wrote a poem for her called The Sigh, which has lines like, Then Mary, mid my lightsome glee, I heaved the painless sigh for thee. Followed a stanza later by, Then shipwrecked on life's stormy sea, I heaved an anguished sigh for thee. Coleridge has a, a stiller sadness on his breast in the poem, and sickly hope with a waning eye, he was well content to droop and die. <laughs> He's heaving languid sighs all over the place, and finally, still, Mary, exclamation mark, still I sigh for thee. And let's remember that he's only 16 when he writes this poem, or check that, he's actually 21, but there's no 16-year-old like a 21-year-old in love. I've found there, those, those guys are more 16 than actual 16-year-olds, in my experience. Sigh. Languid, anguished, sigh. Mary Evans married someone named Friar Todd, and the devastated Coleridge 
ran, ran down and entered the King's Light Dragoons under the false name Silas Tumpkin Cumberbatch. His brothers managed to get him out of that by going down to the Light Dragoons office and insisting that that their brother Samuel Taylor was insane. And somehow that worked. But this was not the end of our story with Mary Evans. Coleridge was friends, Cambridge friends, with the poet Robert Southey, eventual poet laureate, and yet another youthful, radical, romantic poet who became a conservative later in life, earning him the disapproval and, and ire of the younger romantics, Shelley, Byron, Keats, who were more favorably inclined toward revolutionary zeal. Byron famously savaged Southie and Coleridge, too. We'll get to that later. But for now, let's remind ourselves of, of Byron's introduction to Don Juan, or Don Juan, which he dedicated to Southie, who was then Poet Laureate. But the dedication was more scornful and satirical than sincere. He says, You, Bob, are rather insolent, you know, at being disappointed in your wish to supersede all warblers here below and be the only blackbird in the dish. And then you overstrain yourself or so and tumble downward like the flying fish, gasping on the deck because you soar too high, Bob, and fall for lack of moisture quite a dry, Bob. Some have said that this is about unsuccessful copulation. Well, whatever, I guess. Byron's words for Wordsworth were a comment, I think, on Wordsworth's prefaces and commentary explaining and justifying his positions. "'Tis poetry, at least by his assertion," says Byron. But we're not in the new and young romantics today. We're still with the older ones, and they're still young. Coleridge and Southey wrote a play called The Fall of Robespierre together, and then, incredibly, they developed a plan to move to Pennsylvania, of all places, and start up a utopian community, which they planned to call Scranton. <laughs> I'm joking, not Scranton. But they did have a plan, and they planned to call their utopian community Pantisocracy, which sounds a little embarrassing to my ear, probably too close to the word pants. I won't even go further than that, but you can imagine what other word it might resemble, pantisocracy, but their hearts were in the right place. This wasn't undergrads looking for free love, but pan meaning all. It was equal or level government by all. Here's what they believed. Government by all, general ownership of property, no one person with more power than any other, and it was hoped, no greed, and lots of relaxation. Coleridge and Southey married two sisters, and a third sister married yet another poet, and the six of them, three poets and three sisters, were all in on pantisocracy. Coleridge estimated that members of the society would have to work between two and three hours a day to sustain the colony. I'll be healthier, he thought, more active, they got far enough along in the planning to enlist others, and they contacted a land agent, and they got a price on 300 acres of land, and then guess what? Coleridge received a letter from Mary Evans, his love for five years, urging him not to go. He then wrote a poem about it called, On a Discovery Made Too Late. Thou bleedest my poor heart. It begins and it kind of dissolves in, well... It's not one of his best, let's put it that way. But it shook him, this experience. And when, when Mary Evans got engaged to another, it shook him again. Eventually, just to wrap up Pantisocracy, it was the location that sank the project. They first had thought Kentucky would make a good spot for it, then Pennsylvania, which they got pretty far along with, and then Wales, which would be a little closer to home, and then unable to agree on a location the project collapsed. So there was no Pantisocracy, although Coleridge did leave us the poems Pantisocracy, a sonnet, and another sonnet called On the Prospect of Establishing Pantisocracy, and maybe more to the point, his thinking through of this utopia on the Susquehanna gave us poetry about the Susquehanna and also poetry and writings about politics. 
thinking through the problems of society, through the lens of creating a utopia that would solve all of society's ills, gave him insights or positions into the the ways of men, the struggles of psychology, the role of institutions, the impact of human emotions and urges like greed and lust for power. And it gave us the poem, To a Young Ass, which I so, so, so wanted to be Coleridge addressing himself as a young man with his dreams of utopia, like letter to myself as a ridiculous high school student who who thought this woman would love me if I made her a gift of my own head sculpted out of chocolate or something like that. But it's not. It's a sincere poem. Darn it. It's literally to a young ass, a donkey, a hard worker, the beast of burden, and all that. It begins, poor little foal of an oppressed race. And the speaker of the poem is going to give it some bread and pet its head and then says, I'd like to take you with me to the dell where high-souled pantasocracy shall dwell. Even the animals, the beasts of burden, the lowly donkeys, were going to have a better time in pantasocracy. I am their brother, Coleridge once said of animals. I call even my cat sister. I respect owls and love jackasses. I have, that's two words in, in Coleridge's phrase. I have no need for kings and ministers. I renounce them all. This is in a letter he wrote, and he gets on a roll and then finishes, May the almighty Pantasocratizer of souls Pantasocratize the earth. That poem to a jackass removed the references to Pantasocracy because, William Empson argued, Coleridge thought people would laugh at his ideas. Another critic has said, no, no, no. Coleridge wanted people to laugh at his ideas. He just didn't want them to be laughed at in the wrong way, which is a much nicer way to frame things. So let's go with that. And now we are on the verge of meeting Mr. William Wordsworth. So let's take our dreamer and poet and Cambridge utopian student and newly married Coleridge and pause there. When we come back, we'll head to the lakes and the long walks and the lyrical ballads and all the rest. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. It is now the summer of 1795, and Coleridge is 22 years old. Dorothy Wordsworth described him as, quote, thin and pale, the lower part of the face not good, wide mouth, thick lips, not very good teeth, longish, loose, half-curling, rough black hair, end quote. But her brother William was simpler in his pronouncement, quote, the only wonderful man I ever knew was Coleridge, end quote. By 1797, the Wordsworths had, were getting along so well, they moved houses in order to be closer to Coleridge, and the two poets, William and Samuel Taylor, enjoyed sharing their thoughts 
with each other. And then here's a great milestone for Coleridge and for English poetry, too. Coleridge was eager to write a poem about a dream a friend had had, and Wordsworth suggested that Coleridge include the killing of an albatross in that dream, in that poem. The word now has become a phrase, meaning something heavy holding you down, some kind of bad luck curse, something you need to shed, and so on. And that's all thanks to this poem. That wasn't the albatross's meaning before then, from what I've come to understand. Wordsworth got it from a book by a captain, and Coleridge put it into his poem, The Rime of the Ancient Mariner, along with some other gloomy themes. It's the sort of poem that some will say is about Coleridge's Coleridge's loneliness, and others interpret it as guilt about the slave trade, and some will say it's about spiritual salvation. The poem begins with an old mariner who stops a wedding guest and wants to tell him a story. The guest is reluctant, but he sees something in the old man's glittering eye. The man then tells him about a voyage he took where a ship was pushed about by a storm, driven south, finally into the icy waters of the Antarctic. They get stuck in the ice, but an albatross appears and leads the ship to safety, which the crew is grateful for. They feed the bird and praise it, and then the mariner shoots the thing with his crossbow. The ship is angry because they thought the albatross was good luck, but they change their mind when the ship heads toward warmer water. Now they're on board. Yes, yes, good thing we shot that thing. That bird brought the fog and the mist. But what happens next is unforgettable. They head to warmer waters, yes, but they go to the equator and the wind dies. Here are some lines. This is a a sailing ship, dependent on wind. Here are some lines. Day after day, day after day, we stuck, nor breath nor motion, as idle as a painted ship upon a painted ocean. Water, water everywhere, and all the boards did shrink. Water, water everywhere, nor any drop to drink. The very deep did rot, O Christ, that ever this should be. Yea, slimy things did crawl with legs upon the slimy sea. Now the crew is furious. It's because you shot the albatross. They still have the dead bird, which is giant, by the way, and they force the mariner to wear it around his neck. Why? To appease the gods? to show remorse or just to punish him. All of the above. And then things get even stranger, but I think I'll save that because I want to do an episode on this poem. One of my ideas is to do a full episode on Tintern Abbey and a full episode on the rhyme of the ancient mariner. So I'll stop there. I'll just say it gets a little supernatural after that. Okay. So, The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner was published in the Lyrical Ballads, which was the joint effort by Wordsworth and Coleridge, and came directly out of this period they shared together, where the two of them were exchanging ideas and hopes and dreams and principles, poetic principles, that were almost more like a political stance. Wordsworth especially wanted poetry to be in the style of real people, natural words used by natural men and describing natural things. Coleridge was a little more on the supernatural side, but his goal was largely similar. He wanted to show the common emotions of humanity and remember that master who was forcing Coleridge to rethink the elevated language in favor of a more natural style. The book came out in 1798 and was republished in 1800 with a preference, uh, a preference, a preface that we spent some time with in our Wordsworth episode. It's something like a manifesto and tells us a lot about Wordsworth was attempting to do with Coleridge's enthusiastic support, although Coleridge put some qualifications around that too. Coleridge, meanwhile, was headed to Germany to soak up what he could from the professors and lecturers and and the general intellectual atmosphere of the day. And he mastered the language during the nine months that he was there. Back in England, he was writing poems and political articles and essays. He was no longer an unmitigated fan of the French Revolution. The terror had affected him, as it had uh, Wordsworth, and made Coleridge question his earlier enthusiasm. 
He valued the ordered liberty of constitutional government, preferring the slow but steady change and domestic peace and quiet of the system in place in England, rather than the upheaval and chaos that he perceived to be happening across the Channel. He thought about becoming a Unitarian minister, but then he received an annuity, which scuttled the deal, obviated the deal. Now he could work on his poetry. He wrote several excellent poems in this period. I have six poems I want to mention, including Ancient Mariner, and all of them were written between 1797 and 1802. So let's take a look. We'll start with a pair of supernatural tales. I said earlier that Coleridge and Wordsworth essentially had the same focus to bring poetry out of the age of Alexander Pope and his couplets, and in general, the kind of ornate, overly worked poetry of the 18th century, overwrit and overwrought. They wanted to clear away those barnacles and find something closer to Shakespeare or Milton, something fresh and manly, in Coleridge's phrase. We think of Manly, we think of that term as macho, and maybe there was some of that direct and strong, but I think of manly also being uh, that he means something like human, real people, real voices, men speaking to men, he wanted, or as we would say today, people speaking to people. He described his conversations with Wordsworth as turning frequently on the two cardinal points of poetry, the power of exciting the sympathy of the reader by a faithful adherence to the truth of nature. That's very Wordsworthian. And the second cardinal point is a bit more Coleridge, the power of giving the interest of novelty by the modifying colors of imagination. Let me read those two again. This is Coleridge setting forth the two cardinal points of poetry as he and Wordsworth developed them in 1797 or thereabouts. First, the power of exciting the sympathy of the reader by a faithful adherence to the truth of nature. And second, the power of giving the interest of novelty by the modifying colors of imagination. Which brings us to a pair of poems that fit with the rhyme of the ancient mariner, and these were both composed around the same time, in the same handful of months or years, Kubla Khan and Christabel. Kublai Khan is almost as famous for the story of its composition as it is for its imagery. This is the notorious person from Porlock story. I think we did a whole episode on the person of Porlock back in our archives. You can check that out, but I'll summarize it again here. Coleridge was on a walk by himself, and he took two grains of opium to help assuage the dysentery that had been bothering him for a while. He stopped at an old stone farmhouse near Porlock, and he read a travel book called Purchase His Pilgrimage, which was almost 200 years old. He fell asleep while reading, and he awoke a few hours later, and he started writing down the images that had passed before him in his opium-laced fever dream. While he was writing, a person from Porlock came and interrupted him, and it was over. That was it. He couldn't go on. He couldn't recover the images or the words that had come so easily before. Artists from then on have used the person from Porlock to stand in for the act of creativity being disrupted by the claims of everyday life, those stumbling bumblers who knock on the door or ring us up on the telephone or otherwise remind us that we are not eagles soaring through the skies of creativity, but ordinary men and women stuck in a world of bill collectors and nosy neighbors and beeping garbage trucks and so on. None of this would matter if the poem was no good, but it's fantastic. What we have, the fragment, takes us into a world of Kublai Khan, inspired by Samuel Purchase's travels, which in turn were relating the writings of Marco Polo, who may have visited Xanadu in 1275 or so. Kublai Khan was a Mongol emperor, the grandson of Genghis Khan, whose summer capital was called Xanadu. Coleridge claimed he had 200 to 300 lines ready to roll after his dream, but when he got to 30, the person on business from Porlock interrupted him. He should be hanged, drawn, and quartered, said one American professor. If anyone in literature 
should be hanged, drawn, and quartered. It's the person on business from Porlock. That poor wretch. But we do have the 30 lines. Let's hear the first few. Kubla Khan by Samuel Taylor Coleridge. Or A Vision in a Dream, a Fragment. In Xanadu did Kubla Khan a stately pleasure dome decree where Elf, the sacred river, ran through caverns measureless to man down to a sunless sea. So twice five miles of fertile ground with walls and towers were girdled round, and there were gardens bright with sinuous rills, where blossomed many an incense-bearing tree. And here were forests ancient as the hills, enfolding sunny spots of greenery. The poem goes on to describe an explosion creating the sacred river, which Khan hears as a prophecy of war. The pleasure dome is reflected on the water. There's a, a geyser above ground and a river underground. Then there's a woman playing a dulcimer. This is a vision of the poet who wants to revive her song within himself and bring the music to the pleasure dome. And it's all somewhat wild, but I think it works. It's suggestive. Coleridge viewed it as a fragment, unfinished, and he read it to the Wordsworths a few times, but then he didn't do anything with it until Byron, of all people, heard it and urged him to publish it in 1816, which Coleridge did, along with our next poem, Christabel. But let's stick with Byron for a moment, because you might be wondering, well, hadn't Byron gotten fed up with Coleridge and the older Romantic poets? What was he doing encouraging to publish his poems, Coleridge turned away from poetry at something like the age of 30. He still discussed it, but he also discussed politics and philosophy and divinity. He became what many people consider to be the greatest English critic since Johnson, and maybe the greatest English intellectual ever, at least in his areas of interest. He was influenced by the Germans, by Kant, for example, and he sought to expound on these philosophies, even as he was in the throes of an addiction to opium that took its toll on him spiritually and physically. His letters with descriptions of his struggles are hard to read. He tried to keep his addiction hidden from the world, including from his close friends, but it all came out when he was older, and there are some indications that he might have played up his opium usage to try to sell himself as a poet, as a dreamer, as one inspired, as someone with fantastical visions. There was a moment when this was kind of in vogue, sort of like LSD in in the 1960s had a little moment. Who has been to the other side? Who can tell us what was there? But when you read Coleridge's letters, you can see that he would have traded all of this for having never touched the stuff. Listen to this letter to a friend, quote, In exact proportion, as I loved any person or persons more than others and would have sacrificed my life to them, were they sure to be the most barbarously mistreated by silence, absence, or breach of promise? What crime is there scarcely which has not been included in or followed from the one guilt of taking opium? not to speak of ingratitude to my Maker for the wasted talents, of ingratitude to so many friends who have loved me I know not why, of barbarous neglect of my family. I have in this one dirty business of laudanum a hundred times deceived, tricked, nay, actually and consciously lied. And yet all these vices are so opposite to my nature that but for the free agency annihilating poison, I verily believe that I should have suffered myself to be cut in pieces rather than have committed any one of them. End quote. He never fully quit opium, but he got it under control thanks to a doctor who took him into his full-time care. We owe some of Coleridge's later works to this doctor. Coleridge lived to be 61, when he died of respiratory problems and an enlarged heart. He was productive in prose in his later years, writing sermons and the majestic Biographia Literaria, a critical autobiography, which is long and somewhat digressive, sort of shandy-esque, a series of meditations on various topics. It's about readers and reading and a sort of philosophical inquiry into various topics. Coleridge is wrestling with Kant and Descartes and Wordsworth and any number of 
theological and philosophical arguments. He writes, quote, the imagination I consider either as primary or secondary. The primary imagination I hold to be the living power and prime agent of all human perception, and as a repetition in the finite mind of the eternal act of creation in the infinite I am. End quote. Later he said, no, 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 that's not quite right. Nature and the human imagination are fallen. And my definition of it in the biographia was unformed and immature. Nevertheless, there is a lot there in that book, the Biographia Literaria, worth reading and trying to understand. It's provocative, if not always persuasive. It influenced Ralph Waldo Emerson and the entire transcendentalist movement. It's a great book for excerpts. Some of the passages are perfectly straightforward and enjoyable. It distinguishes imagination and fancy in an interesting way. It has the phrase, willing, willing suspension of disbelief, which has become something like a household, household phrase, in the households of poetry professors at least. Kind of improbable, that phrase, willing suspension of disbelief. It's had improbable success, unexpected success. Other parts of the Biographia Literaria are more along the lines of, well, it's not clear exactly what Coleridge means here, but it's profitable to try to figure it out. He's calling forth all our powers. So Byron's lines about Coleridge in Don Juan, which we've been saving, fit perfectly here. When he's summing up all of the older Romantic poets, he says, And Coleridge, too, has lately taken wing, but like a hawk encumbered with his hood, explaining metaphysics to the nation, I wish he would explain his explanation. End quote. Coleridge was a great explainer, or at least a great talker, a great conversationalist, a great essayist. Why don't we shift gears a little here? We were in the middle of going through six poems. Why don't I give you some of Coleridge's later-in-life statements to wrap up that phase of Coleridge's life when he was explaining things? And Byron wished he would explain his explanation. And then we'll close with the four poems that we have left, which are all from that marvelous decade or five years when young Coleridge and the young Wordsworth were making their mark. Coleridge was the first person to use the word bipolar, which is very fitting since he might have suffered from the disorder himself, although his usage of the word was slightly different. He wrote this in 1827. I wish our clever young poets would remember my homely definitions of prose and poetry. That is, prose equals words in their best order. Poetry equals the best words in their best order. A few years later, he wrote, quote, A poet ought not to pick nature's pocket. Let him borrow, and so borrow as to repay by the very act of borrowing, end quote. That's a romantic to the end. Take your inspiration from nature, but write in a way that contributes to nature as well, that honors it and becomes it in a way. The poems help to change the humans who are, after all, part of the natural world too. Coleridge was a great critic. He was a great critic of Wordsworth, and he wrote about Wordsworth's famous preface to the lyrical ballads, agreeing with parts of it, disagreeing with others. He was an especially astute reader of Shakespeare. For example, he looked at Iago, who offers several reasons why he hates Othello and wants to destroy him, but, but none of them are convincing. Coleridge summarizes this as, quote, the motive hunting of motiveless malignity, end quote. What a great phrase. Evil for its own sake, casting around for excuses. That's Iago, the motive hunting of motiveless malignity. Coleridge had a famous line that you'll read on the back of just about every edition of Tom Jones. He said, the three most perfectly planned plots in the whole of literature are Sophocles, Oedipus Rex, Ben Jonson's The Alchemist, and Henry Fielding's Tom Jones. Okay, let's take our last break, and then we will conclude with four classic Coleridge poems from the years 1797 to 1802. (laughs) 
<laughs> okay, that's a little bright. Uh, gets us ready for these four poems, which are great. Okay, our first poem is called Christabel, often lumped together with the ancient mariner and Kublai Khan as his dreamier works with supernatural elements. This one was written in 1800, but it didn't make it into the lyrical ballads. Wordsworth was against including it, and so it wasn't published until 1816, along with Kublai Khan. This one, too, is a fragment, although it's much longer than Kublai Khan. Some call it a Halloween poem, although it takes place in the spring. It's about a woman named Christabel who's walking in the woods when she encounters a woman named Geraldine or it seems Geraldine, pronounced like decline, who says she's been abducted by some men on horseback. Something is up with Geraldine. She can't cross an iron gate, for example, and strange things are happening when she's around. A dog moans angrily, even though the dog is asleep. Torches start to go out and then suddenly reignite. Christabel invites Geraldine home to help her, but when Geraldine is undressing, she reveals a terrible mark on her body. Christabel's father is quite taken with Geraldine, and Christabel objects, sort of. She's pretty weak. She's sort of enchanted by Geraldine, but there's something malign about Geraldine, maybe seriously so. There's an element of the vampire about her, and there's sexual tension between the two women that have this air of danger. Here's some scene-setting lines from the poem. Is the night chilly and dark? The night is chilly, but not dark. The thin gray cloud is spread on high. It covers, but not hides the sky. The moon is behind and at the full, and yet she looks both small and dull. The night is chill, the cloud is gray. "'Tis a month before the month of May, "'and the spring comes slowly up this way." The poem gave Shelley nightmares, and Byron was affected too. He wrote to Coleridge to praise the poem, the description of the hall, the lamp suspended from the image, and more particularly of the girl herself as she went forth in the evening, all took a hold on my imagination, which I never shall wish to shake off, he said. Edgar Allan Poe was another fan and wrote a poem called The Sleeper that echoes some of Coleridge's lines. Here's Poe. At midnight in the month of June, I stand beneath the mystic moon. An opiate vapor, dewy, dim, exhales from out her golden rim and softly dripping drop by drop upon the quiet mountain top, steals drowsily and musically into the universal valley. End quote. That's Christabel. Our next poem is Frost at Midnight. It's a wonderful poem written in 1798 where the young father Coleridge is up at night. On a cold winter's night, the thin blue flame lies on the low burnt fire and quivers not, and Coleridge is taking care of his infant son. The frost performs its secret ministry, he says, unhelped by any wind. The inmates of my cottage, all at rest, have left me to that solitude which suits abstruser musings, save that at my side my cradled infant slumbers peacefully. Ah, You know this if you're a parent. There's nothing more calming, nothing that gives a greater sense of peace and quiet than a, a sleeping baby. It puts everything at ease. It makes everything in the world settle down and feel warm and rhythmic. You adopt the breathing rhythms of the infant, their little minds and little bodies resting in sleep, slowly heaving up and down. You can't know what's in their minds ever, really. But there's something about their state of sleep that brings a kind of connection with them. Their minds, when awake, are exciting and probably filled with weird big shapes coming into slow resolution and language arriving like strange sounds gradually piecing themselves together into meaning. It would probably seem like unmanageable psychotic chaos to us, but the sleep, the peaceful dreams, those feel more natural, more relatable, more pure. Those are just good thoughts and feelings and absorbable dreams. And we start thinking about our own aging process, our own childhood. We were once young, too. And we had things to learn and school to attend and adventures ahead of us. All the people we've met, the friends we've had, the new experiences. There's a world of discovery ahead of this little one. A world that we were 
thrilled to discover ourselves every day and every hour. And now we can give that to this little one as a kind of gift. Coleridge is thinking about all of this. In Frost at Midnight, here are a few lines. Dear babe, that sleepest cradled by my side, whose gentle breathings heard in this deep calm fill up the interspersed vacancies and momentary pauses of the thought. My babe so beautiful, it thrills my heart with tender gladness thus to look at thee and think that thou shalt learn far other lore and in far other scenes. For I was reared in the great city, pent mid cloisters dim, and saw not lovely but the sky and stars. But thou, my babe, shall wander like a breeze by lakes and sandy shores, beneath the crags of ancient mountain and beneath the clouds, which image in their bulk both lakes and shores and mountain crags. So shalt thou see and hear the lovely shapes and sounds intelligible of that eternal language which thy God utters, who from eternity doth teach himself in all and all things in himself. That's from Frost at Midnight. The whole thing is worth your time. It's not long, and it's beautiful. Our next poem is less optimistic, unless you are the sort, as I sometimes am, who can take some optimism from feeling low. Clouds in my coffee and all that. The poem is called Dejection, an Ode. Coleridge was in love with Sarah Hutchinson, a woman who was not his wife. I suppose that's enough said. Mary Hutchinson, you might recall, had married William Wordsworth. Coleridge married one of the Fricker sisters, Sarah Fricker, but he was in love with Sarah Hutchinson, Mary's sister. This is how close these poets all were. I told you that he and Southey and another poet had all married three sisters, but he, Coleridge wished that he and Wordsworth had been married to two sisters instead. Coleridge says, hey, guess what? I'm in love. I'm unhappy about being in love because it's going to be unfulfilled, and now I can't enjoy nature, and I can't write poetry either. I'm emotionally paralyzed. That's in Dejection and Ode. There are eight irregular stanzas. Here's the second one. Two. A grief without a pang, void, dark, and drear, a stifled, drowsy, unimpassioned grief, which finds no natural outlet, no relief, in word or sigh or tear. O oh, lady, in this wan and heartless mood, to other thoughts by yonder throstle wooed, all this long eve, so balmy and serene, have I been gazing on the western sky and its peculiar tint of yellow-green. And still I gaze, and with how blank an eye! And those thin clouds above in flakes and bars, that give away their motion to the stars, those stars that glide behind them or between, now sparkling, now bedimmed, but always seen, yon crescent moon, as fixed as if it grew in its own cloudless, starless lake of blue, I see them all so excellently fair, I see, not feel, how beautiful they are. But let's return to an even earlier time, also one of unsum unhappiness, but with more of a happy ending, as I think we need to see Coleridge's life and works. He had plenty of suffering, especially thanks to the addiction he could not shake. But his mind was lively, and he left us works of genius, and I think he'd be happy about that. Here's a less dramatic version of the same arc in a poem called This Lime Tree Bower My Prison. We are in 1797, the world of Wordsworth, or should I say the Wordsworths, William and Dorothy, and their friend Charles Lamb is there too. Remember him? Coleridge's old schoolmate friend, and Coleridge is eager to go on a walk with this group. This was their thing. Walk, enjoy nature, draw inspiration, talk about poetry, share ideas, maybe come back and write some poetry, rest, recover, Rinse and repeat. And then his wife pours out a skillet of boiling milk on Coleridge's foot. And so he's laid up. The one thing he wants to do in life, the one thing he values more than any other, walks with the Wordsworths and Charles Lamb, is now 
off the table thanks to the skillet of boiling milk that was poured on his foot. And so he's laid up, unable to join them on their walk. So instead, he sits under a lime tree in his friend's garden. Here's some lines. Well, they are gone, and here must I remain, this lime tree bower my prison. I have lost beauties and feelings such as would have been most sweet to my remembrance even when age had dimmed mine eyes to blindness. <laughs> that's, some, that's some real regret. There they go, my pals, and I'm missing out. I'm, they're probably going to see things that are so wonderful and great, they would go into my little treasure chest of memories. Even when I get old and blind, I'd be able to look back on those beauties that they're going to see. I'm missing it all in this prison of a lime tree bower. Okay. He thinks, he continues to think about what his friends are doing on their stroll. He says, quote, They meanwhile, friends whom I never more may meet again, on springy heath along the hilltop edge, wander in gladness and wind down, perchance, to that still roaring dell of which I told. See, it hurts him. He's, he's walking through this place that they are seeing, imagining what they get to see and experience. That's where he wants to be with them, damn it, on the walks. And he knows just where they are. He says, The roaring dell or wooded, narrow, deep, and only speckled by the midday sun, where its slim trunk, the ash from rock to rock, flings arching like a bridge, that branchless ash, unsunned and damp, whose few poor yellow leaves ne'er tremble in the gale, yet tremble still, fanned by the waterfall. And there, my friends, behold the... He's really torturing himself, isn't he? He's imagining everything that everyone gets to do. It's like it's like if you're a kid and your, your friends go off to Disney World and you just sit there at home because maybe you're sick that day or something, and you just think about all the rides they're going on and the food that they get to eat and... And the shows that they get to see and all the fun and they're laughing and they're now they're having cotton candy and now they're going on the roller coaster again. This is this is the romantic poet's version of that. Right? He says, and there, my friends, behold the dark green file of long lank weeds that all at once a most fantastic sight still nod and drip beneath the dripping edge of the blue clay stone. Man, it's like a heaven out there. And he keeps going. He knows the spot they come to next. He says, now my friends emerge beneath the wide, wide heaven and view again the many steepled tract magnificent of hilly fields and meadows and the sea. He thinks about how the sea will affect Charles, his pal Charles Lamb, who's been in the city all year pining for nature. And he's incredibly jealous. You can tell how badly Coleridge wants to be there. And nature, which he's just imagining from past visits, is beginning to overwhelm him. Shine in the slant beams of the sinking orb, ye purple heath flowers. Richlier burn, ye clouds. Live in the yellow light, ye distant groves. And kindle thou blue ocean so my friend, struck with deep joy, may stand, as I have stood, silent with swimming sense, yea, gazing round on the wide landscape, gaze till all doth seem less gross than bodily, and of such hues as veil the Almighty Spirit, when yet he makes spirits perceive his presence. Look at that. Look at that. I'm stuck here under this stupid tree, and you are watching the slant beams of the sinking orb, the sun, which is lighting up the purple heath flowers and, and making the clouds burn richlier and richlier. The groves and the yellow light are living, and the, the blue ocean is kindled with the sun. And so, my, my pal, Charles... The guy from the city is going to be standing there struck with deep joy. 
silent with swimming sense. Oh, he's looking around, and guess what? He's going to believe he's in a wide, wide heaven, and he's seeing God. That this is God revealing himself to humans through nature. And Coleridge is missing all of it. But here's the key. Here is the key. Coleridge, listen to those words. Coleridge is, he's experiencing it too, isn't he? He's traveling there in his mind and in his memory. He can see it and enjoy it for what that is. And he can do it all from this quote unquote prison under this lime tree. Well, if he can do it here, he can do it anywhere. This is available to him. His experiences have made this possible. And here he says, A delight comes sudden on my heart, and I am glad as I myself were there. Nor in this bower, this little lime tree bower, have I not marked much that has soothed me. There isn't much here. There isn't much here. But my mind... My beautiful mind, I can travel with my friends mentally, and guess what? Guess what? That process makes him appreciate the nature that he finds even here in this little prison under the lime tree. Because if God's revealing himself in that gorgeous landscape with the sunset and the ocean and the clouds and all of that, well, what's here? What what can I see here? And can't I find some magic and majesty here too. He says, pale beneath the blaze. And now he's back in his lime tree bower. Pale beneath the blaze hung the transparent foliage, and I watched some broad and sunny leaf and loved to see the shadow of the leaf and stem above dappling its sunshine. And that walnut tree was richly tinged, and a deep radiance lay full on the ancient ivy, which usurps those fronting elms and now with blackest mass makes their dark branches gleam a lighter hue through the late twilight. And though now the bat wheels silent by and not a swallow twitters, yet still the solitary humble bee sings in the bean flower. Henceforth I shall know that nature ne'er deserts the wise and pure. No plot so narrow be but nature there. No waste so vacant but may well employ each faculty of sense and keep the heart awake to love and beauty. This is the the trick of the romantic poet and the sensibility. It's not the little kid who doesn't get to go to Disney World and has to sit at home on a couch. There's no roller coasters there. There's no cotton candy. It's just a couch. But look at this. If you're a romantic poet in love with nature, nature is available. It's omnipresent. Just go outside, look around. You're going to feel the breeze on your cheek and and see the sun. The sun doesn't only belong to beautiful meadows by the ocean. The sun is there lighting things up even in the unlikeliest of places, even in the humblest of places. If you're awake, if your heart is awake to love and beauty, that's a good place to be. And sometimes... Back to the poem, sometimes. Tis well to be bereft of promised good, that we may lift the soul and contemplate with lively joy the joys we cannot share. There we go. That's the note of hope. There's still a few more lines in the poem, but this is a good place to end, because it's what we get from Coleridge. It's well to be bereft of promised good, to have something you're looking forward to taken away because you can lift the soul and contemplate all the fun you're not going to have, all the joys you don't get to share, but contemplate them with lively joy. Be glad even for the absences, even for the missed opportunities because of what's left instead, because of what you have. You maybe didn't go down the path you wanted to go down, but you went down a different path. And maybe that's 
the path that's more beneficial if you approach it with a sense of lively joy. That is a very hopeful, positive way to look at life. I love it. It's so Coleridge. I never played sports with the other boys, he says. Found no joy in those boyish sports, but what was he doing instead? He was he was busy reading Virgil, says those who knew him. And he found friends later in life, good ones, who shared those poetic interests. And he found in books and ideas and poetry the mental nourishment that sustained him throughout his life. Nature could lift his spirits, but so could ideas. They inspired him and engaged him and brought him comfort and peace and joy, too. Great, boundless joy, joy that took him toward the heavens, which seemed to him to be wide, wide, and life, which was not always happy and maybe narrow, until you applied your mind to it, and then it seemed as boundless and full of hope as the universe. He didn't always keep his passion for revolution, but he kept his love for freedom and friendship and for the right words, especially when they were in the right place. Okay, there we go. My thanks to Samuel Taylor Coleridge for his efforts, which I find inspiring too. He's a writer worth reading, even when he's not, let's put it that way. And when he is worth reading, boy. (laughs) I think you could hear my enthusiasm at the end there. So we have some Machiavelli coming up and some Carl Ove Knausgaard, some Dr. Johnson, and the thriller writer who inspired Graham Greene and Ian Fleming will have that story too. And much, much more all in the works. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening and we'll see you next time. <laughs>